6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Prehistorical Record. Well, we are in hour three of our Learn the Bible in 24 Hour project, and we are going to be dealing with the remainder of the first unit of Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are regarded as a unit. Some people would call it the prehistory period, regarding history starting with Abraham from a biblical point of view. In the first two chapters, we had an introduction, and then we talked about the creation and the creation of, uh, of Adam, and then the fall of man, which sets the stage for the entire Bible. Chapter 3 was the seed plot for the entire Bible. But chapter 4 through chapter 11 is our task in front of us. And uh, if you look at a timeline, obviously going from the creation, the fall of man, the book of Genesis will carry us all the way up to the Exodus, a major portion of history. And then the rest of the Old Testament will take us from the Exodus through the exile when the nation Israel goes to the Babylonian captivity. There is a 400-year period that's regarded as the period between the Testaments, sometimes called the silent years. But they're actually not silent. You'll find them in your Bible. They're detailed in advance. In Daniel 11, we'll deal with that when we get there. But it's interesting that the Old Testament covers several thousand years, so the better part of uh, 4,000 years. And the New Testament covers one lifetime, not only in terms of the span of its authorship, but also in terms of its scope, uh, its focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, the Bible goes far beyond that, right up to the end, and we'll be exploring that as we go. Our goal in going through this review is to emerge with a respect for the packaging, the total design, that every number, every place name, every detail in the Bible is there by design. 66 books penned by over 40 different guys over thousands of years, yet are an integrated message. Every detail there is deliberate. We're going to show you some examples of that in these sessions. So I want you to come away, not just with an overview, a survey kind of picture. I want you to be able to really get a feeling for the integrity of design of the whole. Once you discover that for yourself, it'll change your perspective of, of the entire package. Well, we are, of course, in between the fall of man and uh, the flood and so forth. So chapter 4 of Genesis deals with Cain and Abel, a story most of us are familiar with. And then Genesis 5, uh, a genealogy, which sounds boring, but I'll have some, show you some surprises. And then, of course, we have the flood of Noah and the Tower of Babel. These are the, the main topics that we'll be uh, get, getting into. And that, uh, this is the third hour of the 24. Now, Cain and Abel, most of us know the story that uh, Cain and Abel both offered, made offerings to God. And Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not. Many people get confused 
as by reading the story superficially, the issue is not the fact that Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. That's indeed what they were doing. But Abel offered one of the sheep, Cain offered the fruits of the ground. And uh, the, the point that you miss until you've read your rest, the rest of the Bible and come back to this a second time is that Abel was following the procedures that God had ordained. It was by the shedding of blood was, was what the offering is all about. Cain was doing it his way, offering the fruits of a cursed ground, offering his works in a sense. So Cain's offering really was the fruit of his own labors is the key thought here. Abel's was offering a lamb that he didn't produce, God did, but he's offering a lamb in accordance with, apparently, the instructions that God had laid down. That'll become clearer as you learn the rest of your Bible. Cain's offering was rejected. Abel's was accepted. Now, one of the questions you'd ask is, how did they know? How do you know when you put an offering in an offering plate it's accepted or not? Well, in that case, uh, you, the church spends your money, you know they, they've accepted it. But the point is, that's a little different situation here. There is abundance of scripture that indicates in those early years the offering was consumed by fire. It was very obvious that who was accepted, which is accepted and which wasn't. And so, of course, Cain's offering uh, was rejected. He, uh, as a result, murdered his brother Abel. And by the way, a lot of people keep, one of the questions you always get, uh, Sunday school kind of questions, is where did Cain get his wife? Everybody asks that. For some reason, that's a big deal. Just explain that he married his brother's sister because he was Abel. It's very simple. Huh? <laughs> obviously, Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters, and obviously out of that came his wife. But it's interesting to look at this story and realize that both Cain and Abel came from the same parents. They were fallen parents, and they all needed uh, atonement uh, offering. Both of these were outside of Eden. And they were judicially alienated. Both of them were. But one offered his own works. The other leaned in effect. Maybe whether he realized it or not, he was offering an offering that pointed to the completed work of Christ. And the integrity of design is essential here as you look at that. And death is required. That's why a lamb was a substitution representing them in the death. And so, and God would provide the lamb. We'll discover that when we get to chapter 22 in the next session. But one of the things I'd like to talk about while we, in this area of the Bible, we're going to constantly raise this question, are there hidden codes in the Bible? There's lots of nonsense being published in this area, but don't uh, realize that it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. And it's the duty and honor of kings to search out a matter. Proverbs 25, 2. So let me give you a riddle. Who is the oldest man in the Bible? Anyone? Methuselah. Good for you. He lived 969 years. Yet he died before his father. Good for you. <laughs> you, you looked ahead, I think. Right, okay. Yeah, see, see, everybody forgets who his father was. His father was Enoch. 
and Enoch didn't die. Enoch's an interesting character. At the age of 65, something occurred in his life which caused him from that day on to walk with God. For the next 300 years, he walked with God. He had a son by the name of Methuselah. Now, by the way, the flood of Noah that we're going to get to did not come as a surprise. It was preached on for four generations. In fact, Enoch was told when his son was born that as long as his son is alive, the judgment of that flood would be withheld. And so he named him Methuselah from two roots. Muth is a Hebrew root which means his death. It occurs 125 times in the Old Testament. And the verb shalak, which means to bring or send forth. Methuselah means, in effect, that his death shall send forth, or his death shall bring. That's what it means. And it's interesting to discover that if you take Methuselah, in chapter 5 of Genesis, take Methuselah, when he was 187, he had Lamech. When Lamech was 182, he had Noah. And it's the 600th year of Noah's life that the flood came. The year that Methuselah dies is the year the flood came. So Methuselah's life becomes a representation of God's mercy. But it's interesting, that, and that's so interesting that it's the longest lifetime in the Bible. That's, that's symbolic. But it's interesting, too, that, um, the, that he, his life thus becomes the measure of the extent that God's withholding the judgment. Now, you girls, can you imagine raising that kid? Every time he caught a cold, the entire neighborhood would go into panic, right? Well, if there's all this meaning hidden behind the name of Methuselah, what about these other ten guys? When you get to Genesis chapter 5, you encounter what's basically a genealogy from uh, Adam to Noah. Ten people. And our problem with this list of names, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, uh, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, the problem is it's not translated for you. We don't translate proper names. Even a Strong's Concordance or one of those, th they, they won't translate proper names. What does the name mean? Well, see, my name, my legal name is Charles. What does Charles mean? Who knows? There's all kinds of conjectures, but no one's quite sure. In the Hebrew, virtually all Hebrew words are formed from a three-letter root, a root word that has a meaning. And so in the Hebrew, if you can get to a root dictionary, understand what the roots mean, you can get an indication of what the words mean. So let's take a look. Let's just indulge me here a little bit. We're going to take a quick look of these Hebrew words. The word Adam, of course, it comes from Adomah, which means man. Okay, he has a son by the name of Seth after the death of Abel. The word Seth is a root which suggests appointed. And she even says so in, Genesis, in the chapter 4, verse 25, Eve said, For God hath appointed me another seed, instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So the word Seth suggests appointed or a substitutionary thing. He has a son by the name of Enosh. Now, this comes from a root which means mortal, frail, or miserable. It's from the root Anash, which is usually used of something incurable, like a wound, or grief, or woe, or sickness, or wickedness. Anash, mortal, frail. 
He has a son by the name of Kenan. Some of your Bibles say Canaan. That's a mistranslation. It's Kenan. In fact, Balaam in Numbers 24 makes a pun on his name. Kenan, from which come the Kenites. The word can mean sorrow, dirge, or elegy. These are pretty tough names to go through school with. Miserable. Um, you know, it doesn't quite work. You have to choose up basketball team. Hey, sorrow, you're on our side. It doesn't, doesn't work too well. So Kenan, when he has a son, he's had enough of this between him and his father. So he names his son a mouthful, but a great name. He says Mahalalel is his son's name. Comes from two roots. One which means the blessed or praised one, and El, the name of God. Mahalalel means the blessed God, or the praised God, if you will. That's not bad. He has a son by the name of Yarad, and uh, Yarad is a verb which means uh, shall come down. And there's some speculations as to why these names occurred, but I'll spare you all that for this quick review. But he has a son by the name of Enoch. Now we've talked about Enoch. But what does his name actually mean? It means commencement. It's an academic term, or like teaching. It's interesting that the first prophecy uttered by a prophet in the Bible is a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it was uttered before the flood of Noah. You won't find it in Genesis. You'll find it in the book of Jude. Verses 14 and 15. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And on it goes. Book of Jude. You'll find this uh, in, the, in the next to the last book in the New Testament. But it's a prophecy spoken by Enoch. We know a lot from this prophecy. We know the Lord's coming is sure. We know who will come with Him. We know the purpose of His coming, the result of His coming. At the nadir of apostasy, uh, Enoch was translated, or raptured, if I may use that term. He's roughly midway between Adam and Abraham. It's interesting that Elijah will be translated. We'll get to him when the time comes. That's midway between Abraham and Christ. Kind of interesting pattern. You see, God does deal in patterns. And uh, Hebrews talks about this. Faith, Enoch was translated, they should not see death. And he was not found because God translated him for before his translation. He had this testimony, what? That he pleased God. So Enoch's an interesting guy, worth your study. But in any case, he walked with God. That was not a casual stroll. He did that for 300 years. And what the term really implies, they were in agreement. He was surrendered. He was a witness of it. That privilege that he enjoyed is available to you and me today. And the Colossians 2 and Galatians 5 and 2 Corinthians 5 deals with that. But let's get back to Methuselah here. I mentioned his name means his death shall bring. He has a son by the name of Lamech. Now here's a case where the root is still operative in our own language. It's evident in our English word lament or lamentation. The word Lamech suggests despairing despairing. And he has a son by the name of Noah, and, uh, which is derived from the word Necham, which means to bring relief or comfort. In fact, uh, it means comfort or rest. So there we have it. 
Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. That's the genealogy from Adam to Noah. But let's, that's in a transliterated Hebrew of sorts. Let's read it in English. Adam means man, right? Seth is, means appointed. Man's appointed, mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death, whose death? God's death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. Wow is right. You know, I love to do this because there's always a gasp. People haven't seen this before. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death, God's death, shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. You know what's astonishing about this, of course, what catches your breath, here is a summary of the Christian gospel that's tucked away here in Genesis chapter 5. It, there's several things we can learn from this. First of all, God's plan of redemption was not a knee-jerk reaction to Adam having messed up. God knew he would before he was created, but he knew it would ultimately serve his purposes. So when did God first start dealing with you? The answer is in Ephesians 1.4. Before the foundation of the world, God had you personally on his heart. But there's something else practically to notice here. There's no way you'll ever convince me that a group of Jewish rabbis contrived to hide a summary of the Christian gospel in a genealogy in the Torah? No way. No, this is a fingerprint of the Holy Spirit. And it demonstrates in a very simple way, something we're going to see over and over again throughout the entire Bible, evidence of design, anticipation of what's coming. The origin of this message is from outside the time dimension. We'll see evidence of that more and more. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Our whole ministry is based on two discoveries. That the Bible, this collection of 66 books that are in your lap, even though it's penned by over 40 authors, over a period of several thousand years, are an integrated message system. And by that I mean every detail, every number, every place name is there by deliberate design. And if that's true, the second discovery is that it can be demonstrated then that the origin of this message is from outside our dimensions of time and space. And you can pre say you can't prove the Bible. Yes, you can if you do your homework. Now Jesus gave his disciples a very strange warning regarding Noah. He says, as the days of Noah were, so shall the, also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, he's speaking of a second coming. What he really meant by that can mean any of several things, but you won't understand that unless you understand what the days of Noah were really all about. And most people are aware of the fact, obviously, sin was rampant. It was very sinful days, but there's something more sinister even going on. Let's, and we want to take a look at that. In Genesis chapter 6, you have two verses, but I want you to notice carefully the two verses are one sentence. 
a single sentence that, and it's tragic that in most seminaries across the country, they do not teach what I'm going to show you here, which is the traditional view of both the rabbis and the early church. But it's a very controversial view. But I want you to understand why we see it the way we do. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wise of all which they chose. You notice that we're talking about men in general and daughters in general. It said men began to multiply and daughters were born unto them. It's not subs there's no subset here. It's the men in general. There's this strange term, sons of God, that I want to focus on. That's the way it's translated. The term in the Hebrew is B'nai HaElohim, and that term is always used in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, of a direct creation of God, therefore it's of angels. Adam was a direct creation of God. The angels were a direct creation of God. We need to understand that term, sons of God, Benai Elohim. It, in the Greek, when the Hebrews, three centuries before Christ's ministry, translated this into Greek, they used the word in the Greek for angels. In the Old Testament, you'll find it in Job several times. In the New Testament, you'll find the same concept in Luke 20, verse 36. There's a book called the Book of Enoch. It's not part of the Bible. It's not considered inspired, but is a very, very... Uh, a widely venerated book in, from about the 2nd century B.C. to the 2nd century A.D. It's not biblical, it's not inspired, but it is useful for vocabulary and grammar. And it clearly uh, identifies these terms as angels. Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the, trans the translation of the o uh, Hebrew Old Testament into Greek that occurred three centuries before Christ, it translates it that way. The daughters of men phrase is Benoth Adam, is daughters of Adam. Not the daughters of Seth or Cain, specifically daughters of Adam in general. So we have apparently some strange goings on here. According to the text, some fallen angels came down with the intent of creating hybrids. When you get to verse 4, it says there were Nephilim in the earth in those days and also after that. When the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and bare children to them, the same became the mighty men which were of old men of renown. Now if you take the text what it says, this is getting pretty spooky. The word Nephilim, of course, is the key term here. It's translated giants in your English Bible. The word Nephilim means the fallen ones. It comes from the Hebrew verb nephal, to fall or be cast down, to fall away or desert. These were hybrids. Don't confuse them with the fallen angels. They're the offspring of the combination. And that led to what called the Hagibarim, the mighty men, the mighty ones. In the Septuagint, the word is gigantis, which means earthborn. But it's translated giants. They happen to be giants, but that's not what the word means. It means earthborn. And from gigas, meaning earthborn. Now, 
When you get down to verse 9 of chapter 6, there's another interesting insight. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. The word perfect in his generations is a strange Hebrew word. It's tamim. It means without blemish, healthful, without spot, unimpaired. It's a term that's used of physical blemishes. And what this is saying is that Noah's genealogy, his, his family tree, was unblemished. It wasn't contaminated with these strange things going on. It may not, he may not have been the only one that was uncontaminated, but the main point is he, his genealogy was unblemished. Now this whole weird idea that I'm suggesting here is confirmed in the New Testament. When you get to our friend Jude again, the next to the last book, Jude talks about this, is that the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So we're talking about angels that left their habitation. I'm going to come back to that word later. And, going, and they were going after strange flesh. This is pretty strange stuff. Also, Second Peter, Peter's second letter, he says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, and he goes on. So he now mentions the same event. He talks, it was the time of Noah. He uses the term Tartarus. It's translated hell in your Bible, but that's just a translational issue. The word Tartarus doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament, so you sort of stumble at what, what does that word really mean? Well, it's a term that widely used in the Greek for the dark abode of woe. It's considered the pit of darkness in the unseen world. In Homer's Iliad, it's described as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. So where is Tartarus? I don't know, but I know I don't want to go there. Okay? You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.